Good afternoon and welcome to archiving legacy applications as a key tool in maximizing ROI and meeting the post-COVID cash crunch, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by LK. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name's Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to some audience participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. And we're going to do a, a little poll later, and we'll have our panelists guess at the results. Have a little fun there. Nice way to view the screen. Click in the top center. Get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want them and it should say speaker view in the top right hand corner just so you see how we're going to spend our time today first we're going to go about 35 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring john kravitz cio at geisinger health system dr john halamka president of the mayo clinic platform and mark probst cio with lk so without any further delay let's jump right into the conversation um, John Kravitz, why don't we start with you? Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Certainly. Uh, Geisinger um, is an integrated delivery network with a, uh, it's actually an academic um, integrated delivery network. So we've got a medical school of about uh, 450 physicians in training. Um, we do have a health plan uh, that's about 600,000 members right now and growing. Um, the health system itself has uh, 11 hospital campuses and over 500 clinics. And so my responsibility as a corporate CIO is over all three areas for the organization, um, strategic planning and, uh, and operations delivery. Um, been with Geisinger 11 years, so uh, been happy to be part of that discussion. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Holomka? Well, hi, John Holanka, emergency physician, professor of medicine, and the president of Mayo Clinic Platform, where I'm responsible for global digital businesses, uh, partnerships, collaborations, big data, ensuring all is done in a privacy-preserving and ethical fashion. And so over the last 25 years, I was the CIO at Beth Israel Deaconess and Harvard Medical School. So on today's presentation, Anthony, I'll reflect on experiences over all of these various sites. Excellent. Very good. Mark? Yep, Mark Probst, CIO at LK, is a, well, we call ourselves data plumbers. So we work a lot with data, whether that's dealing with integration, whether that's dealing with archiving, really getting data to where it's more usable by, um, for, for systems and for people so that they can make better decisions. Much like John, prior to, uh, I've been with LK three months. Prior to that, I spent 17 years as a CIO at Intermountain Healthcare. And, and again, a lot of my response will be um, with that experience that I had at Intermountain. And if I use the term our, or, or yeah, mostly our, I'm probably talking about Intermountain because I haven't been able to break that yet. Very good. We'll keep that in mind. All right, John Kravitz, let's start with you. Describe the kind of financial pressure health systems are under today. Well, I think during the COVID crisis phase one or, or the early stage of COVID, which we're about to hit, you know, the second stage of COVID and, and experience something similar, although I think we're prepared for much better than we were before. Uh, initial stage involved, you know, cancellation of, of uh, elective surgeries, closing down of clinics, things like that, which really forced us quickly to move to telemedicine. So with a lot of the telemedicine services we have, we've been offering to about 30 odd service lines, 
um, within our system. Ironically, at Geisinger, we did about a thousand a month before COVID, February, early March. Then uh, we we started doing about four thousand a day, and um, and we'll continue down that path. Now, um, about sixty percent of those are video visits, and the other forty were telephonic visits, and that's primarily because people had poor internet service in rural settings. But um, that work continues. Our numbers now have dropped considerably in, in telemedicine, although it's still running about a thousand per day telemedicine visits, video visits. Uh, which are augmenting the services as we open clinics back up with safety precautions. Uh, the reason why I say when phase two hits, we should not have the same impact is because we've done a lot of new innovative development to uh, provide a contactless check-in using geofencing and other things off of uh, our, my chart, our MyChart application. We are obviously an Epic user. Uh, we were the third Epic user in the country, so we've been with it a long time. But uh, we developed a lot with that and uh, are working with facial recognition for patient identification as they come into our clinics. Um, the impact was heavy. It was very, very heavy. There was stimulus dollars associated with it. So that took you know, some of the pressure off, although the losses were um, in the three, you know, the hundreds of million dollars range uh, for our organization. So it was substantial. Um, and it was because of the preempting of the uh, elective surgeries and closing of, of clinical visits. You can make up some of that with uh, telemedicine, but you can't make it all. It's just near impossible to do that. So uh, that's been a real challenge for us. And, uh, and there are needs, needs to cut costs, a lot of areas, streamline operations, um, everything we're going to talk about today. Very good, Dr. Halamka. And so I think John gave you a very good preamble as to what we're seeing across this country, but let me add one twist to it. As we move to increasingly virtual care delivery, where that means remote patient monitoring, it's certainly virtual visits, but it's acuity that ranges from the lowest store and forward, you know, is my mole a cancer to EICU and high acuity care in the home, we're embracing more and more cloud technologies. Now, what does that mean? Clouds are OPEX, subscription models. They're not CAPEX, I buy data centers and servers and that kind of thing. So I would guess as we talk to the IT leaders on this particular webinar, go to your CFO and say, oh, you know that 10 million you gave me for CAPEX, don't need it anymore. I just need 7 million in cash for my new cloud migrations. And they'll say, what? <laughs> So that's a new pressure all of us are feeling in this increasingly virtual environment. Interesting. Very interesting. Mark? Yeah, really, really well said by both of the Johns. I mean, if you look at, from my perspective, I kind of look at it from a macroeconomic uh, view. And, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of stimulus money this year that's held up some of the health system. And I'm on the board of a fairly significant children's hospital system. And, you know, they also received a lot of funds um, and that's just not going to be sustainable. Through the COVID crisis, um, it really did hurt, hurt cash, right? It hurt for all the things John Kravitz said, but there was some relief that was given to us. I think as we go into this next phase, and by the way, Utah's kind of in the middle of it, we're, we're seeing the highest numbers we've ever seen right now and have for the last month and not seeing a lot of relief are Hospitals are starting to fill up, which didn't happen the first time through. So, you know, this, this concept of a second wave 
is going to be very real, at least it is here. And the financial pressures are going to continue to, to get bigger. And so I think any conversation that we have or that I have and people ask me about areas that CIOs or people in IT ought to be focusing on, uh, in the top three is always going to be how are you going to control your costs? How are you going to get your costs down? We cannot, you know, if you look at the world, we spend more on health IT, we spend more on, more on healthcare, but as a percentage of that huge spend on healthcare, we spend a higher percentage on IT. And I, I just don't think that's going to be sustainable. So we need to continue to focus on costs as our health systems, as John kind of pointed out, John Alamka pointed out, we're going digital. We're, we're going, you know, we've got to increase our capabilities in IT. So it's going to be an interesting time, but the pressures are, are real and they're big. All right. Very good. Um, let's start with you, Mark. Um, I assume you're going to say yes to this, but I look for more color around it. Is archiving legacy applications a good way to reduce unnecessary expenses? Yeah, and, and my, my answer to that was, is that a rhetorical question? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, of course, um, anything that we can do. I mean, it isn't just archiving those systems. It's decommissioning the systems that's actually going to save us money. Now, if done right, archiving can create some value to the organizations because you don't want to learn lose things that you've learned or data that you had that's going to be valuable. And it's, you know, archiving done right, you're getting it in a format that then can be usable and can be, you know, exchangeable and get it into standards and those kind of things. But yeah, obviously the answer, my answer is yes. Hey, Mark, real quick, um, you talk about it being done right. I mean, have you experienced, seen it done wrong or, or maybe somewhere else where, what happens? What does that mean if it's done wrong? It costs too much, you lose data, you disrupt the users, all things we're going to talk about avoiding, but is that, is that what happens if it's done wrong? Well, if we just take our data and we keep it, we don't pay any attention to standards, we don't pay any attention to the fact that we want to use that data for other purposes. So we basically just spin it off to some tape or we spin it off to some you know, archive in the cloud it's not nearly as usable. So mm -hmm. thought has to be given as to what, how you take and archive that data so that it can be usable for the purposes that you have moving forward. You also don't want to just archive everything. You know, it's kind of, I, I just moved from a very large house to a very small house. And, you know, I went through a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. I got rid of, right? That either went, got donated to places or thrown away. Well, same concept, right? We got to work with our users as we, take this data and we archive it to say, is this valuable data? And then how, do, you know, what kind of format do we need it in so that we can use it in the long run? Very good, Dr. Lamka. Well, let me answer it in a couple of ways. So what's the trend in healthcare today? Mergers and acquisitions. We know that healthcare gets better by getting bigger. Well, we don't know, maybe not. But the point <laughs> being, is that's a trend. So what always happens in mergers and acquisitions Wise people say, oh, I actually want to migrate, you know, existent EHRs to a single monolithic EHR. Well, as Mark highlighted, the schemas are different. The data integrity is challenged. Maybe you can bring some, but not all. Inevitably, what happens is you're running multiple EHRs for years, and you look at the licensing costs of doing that, the click fees are enormous. So, you know, there's a great trend in mergers and acquisitions to need such a thing. But there's also an issue as we went through high tech and the three stages of meaningful use, 
folks recognized the EHR they had that was incumbent was probably not sufficient for purpose. So even within individual organizations, they upgraded or replaced their EHR, which leaves the same problem. What are you going to do with all that legacy data? How are you going to ensure data integrity and continuity of care for your patients? So in my own personal example, there was a what I'll call last generation EHR in use at several hospitals in Boston that we had to replace with a next generation EHR. And we had to come up with incredibly creative solutions that involved Citrix and database archiving and other things just to ensure data integrity and continuity. It's hard to do. It's expensive if you don't. Very interesting. Uh, uh, John? Yeah, I would say much the same as John and Mark had stated, uh, you know, we, we're in the same boat. We've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the past seven, eight years. And, uh, and we're hanging on to a lot of that legacy. While we've migrated everything over to our standard singular electronic health record, you know, longitudinal record system, we have a lot of that expense hanging around, especially uh, challenging when you even move it to a, a view only mode, but it's hosted in the cloud, it's still very expensive. And so um, part of what, what our strategy is, is to migrate that data off to, you know, a, a archiving solution where we can have visibility and bring it back into the workflow through a cloud connectivity piece into our EHR workflow. If we had to go back and look historically at that data. So that integrity of the data is extremely important. The interoperability is extremely important and the ability to do regulatory requirements of release of information and other purposes of that data is extremely important. So, you know, the ability to get it to a single platform and a cloud hosted as John had talked about, extremely important. We're moving to the cloud very quickly in a lot of areas for our organization. Um, but this is another one. This is really, really important for us and we'll continue to look at ways to reduce expense. That, that move alone is a couple of million dollars a year, just getting that stuff off, off site and into the cloud for us. So it's really important. Yeah, Mark, it sounds like it's, it's, there's a number of things you wanna do in these projects and it's not that hard maybe to do one or two of them, but it's doing all of them. That makes it a really su successful project. And the biggest one we're talking about is actually reducing the costs. Um, you could have moved from your large place to your small place and never quite sold your large place, right? Because you didn't want to get rid of all the stuff. So, okay, we moved. We're in a smaller place, but we're, we're still spending a lot of money. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I had a, a thought around archiving and, you know, just archiving to archive isn't, is, isn't the challenge, right? I mean, or is, isn't the, the answer. The answer is decommissioning applications and getting them out of your portfolio so that you're not spending money on vendors, you're not spending money on hardware, and you're not having to protect data that, that may be in a, you know, in, in a state that you really don't need it in. <clears throat> and, and you're also creating redundancy. So there's a lot of things you have to do as you go through an archiving process. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess LK is funding this. So, you know, pushing them a little bit. I mean, that's, that's what LK does. They help create those strategies and that methodology to get this data into the cloud, into these standard platforms that John was talking about. <clears throat> well, that's a good segue to you, Dr. Halamka. You had mentioned the project that you had done and how complex it was. Um, not everybody's probably got that. Uh, I don't know if you brought in anybody. We don't have to get into that, but not everybody's going to be able to do that. This is complicated stuff. Any more you want to talk about regarding projects that you've done? 
Oh, absolutely. And so, Mark, close your ears. Uh, because, yeah. So here's the challenge. You're dealing with one of these legacy EHRs and you go to the vendor and say, oh, I'd like to do the data extraction to my new EHR. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. Those tools aren't available or they cost one gazillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and so what do you do? And this is where I said, Mark, close your ears. You say, oh, well, that's in a SQL database. I'll just hack the schema. Uh, right. And of course, what you do, I mean, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but there's such subtlety to EHR schemas. Maybe a record's been marked as deleted, but you don't know where the deleted flag is. And so the challenge that I've run into in, in trying to take legacy EHRs and archive the data is getting the data out and ensuring its integrity. And let me just tell you, doing this at home by yourself Trying to hack a schema is a recipe for disaster. Well, and John, you went through an interesting process that Intermountain went through as well, right? We were all self-developed applications, um, but over over decades, you know, the people that wrote the schema, they, they, they weren't necessarily around anymore. So we didn't have any guides. And you, like I said, you, you've been through the same thing. And uh, yeah. Doing this, doing this without some help is a, is a difficult process. But at the same time, if you say, oh, I know HL7 V2, that'll solve all your problems. Uh -huh. well, yeah, well, again, remember that the standards for interoperability often are transactional, right? I'm going to order a lab and get a result. They're not meant for exporting 30 million labs in a bulk process, right? So, so this is why it's just a tough problem that requires some really deep knowledge often outside of what I'll call standard operating procedure. Yeah, I would just add to what John was saying. We, we tried doing the same thing to our big data Hadoop platform to create the archive from one of our cloud hosted vendors that we migrated off to our core Epic system. And, uh, and it took a year and we went through some iterations to try to get that right because the data schema as he has spoken about is a real challenge. And the vendors of no assistance, they don't even want to consider helping you because you're going to get off their platform and sunset it. So um, that's an area that we just said, you know what, it would take us probably 20 years to get 50 different EHRs that we've acquired over the years to take them off our platforms. It just doesn't make any sense. We've got to go to a professional. And that's why we are using LK to do our work. In addition to that, it's not just EHRs, we're also retiring um, two different billing platforms, a hospital billing platform and a professional billing platform as we migrate to our core uh, billing system within uh, the HR environment. And so that is another area that we're going to use it, which I didn't even anticipate. Um, that was a capability, but it is. And we can run down AR and other things through that process. So it's very valuable to us. So it's a don't, don't try this at home. One right. of those, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, how about this? Let me just Go add ahead. that. In. Yeah. in the early days of IT, in the 1990s, it was maybe still permissible to do these sorts of best efforts. But given the compliance environment of 2020, doing this yourself at home no longer works. Right. So don't try and be a hero, right? Those glory yeah. days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to go back to the, the, to the house analogy, but, you know, I'll do electric, electricity because I understand electricity can do it. I won't do plumbing because every time I do, I mm. do it 
And then I hire a plumber to come in and it costs twice as much for him to fix what I did and do it right. <laughs> so. And don't forget paying for the water damage to be repaired. Yeah, and all the damage I did, yeah. Well, how about this, Mark? As a homeowner in Massachusetts, I legally can make changes to what I'll call the endpoints, a plug or a switch. That I will do. But I will not monkey with the main because that could kill me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Very good. All right. Next question, John Kravitz. Let's start with you. Um, how do you prevent this in the first place? How can organizations avoid getting bloated with unnecessary applications? I would say uh, one of the things that we all try to do, and we probably fail more than we're successful at, and that's an IT governance process. When you have new application requests, looking at your existing applications to try to achieve something versus bringing in the shiny new object. Uh, that was one of our downfalls as an organization because of where we're situated. We're in the middle of, you know, central Pennsylvania. There's not a lot of attraction unless you're an outdoorsy person to, uh, to recruit physicians to our organization. So when we recruit physicians from L.A. or San Francisco or Chicago or wherever else, we often would bring, you know, allow them to bring any new application they wanted to into the organization because that would entice them to take the position, especially uh, a specialty physician. So that's been a challenge for us. We got to a point between that and all the uh, merger and acquisitions, we, we bloated out to over 1,500 applications in our application portfolio, uh, extremely high. My goal is to get down to 800 applications in our portfolio. Um, and we're working really, really hard at that. And our governance process is very tight. Um, we've iterated that multiple, multiple times uh, to get it better, uh, multiple, um, sections of it that we go through uh, before we'll even uh, do an ROI on a new application. But first, looking at our existing application stack, what can we do within that? Uh, even if it's a customized template or something like that versus going out and buying a new system, having to integrate that, the compliance of that new system, all those costs that are associated with that and the personnel to support that, very heavy. Mark? Well, I think it's Kind of, kind of important to define unnecessary because my unnecessary may be way different than someone else's unnecessary. And I, you know, John Kravitz hit on governance and how important governance is in that process. This isn't something an IT leader can just go sit in the room and say, you don't need this, you don't need that. You know, we, we've talked many times, well, I, I have talked many times historically about, you want to get rid of reports, just stop sending them out and see who complains. <laughs> and I, I don't think that works in the application space. I think we're dealing with people's lives. So really getting close with the end users and understanding what the needs are, <clears throat> and then figuring out plans on how to replace those needs or or modify those needs to align with what the organization's trying to do. But I, I think that's really, really important, that whole governance and, and understanding what people are trying to do with the systems. You look at what happened over COVID and uh, John Alamka hit this early on, just the, the massive growth in telehealth and telemedicine and those kind of things that are going on. And we also brought in every kind of application known to man to connect people virtually. I mean, I, I don't think that's sustainable, but again, we're going to have to go through a process to rationalize that and make sure that the needs from a clinical perspective, an administrative perspective, a patient perspective, a member perspective, all those things are being met. Uh, met. So it, it really comes down to, you know, defining what's necessary, what's unnecessary, and then getting a plan together. Dr. Halamka? 
So, Anthony, are you old enough to remember the movie The Graduate? Yeah, well, I think I didn't see it when it came out, but I have seen it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So instead of plastics, I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say abstraction layers. Now, why do I say abstraction layers? So when I was an engineering student at MIT, my professor said, build your engineering systems in a modular fashion such that you can take one component out and put another component in with a well-defined abstraction layer. So instead of having 1500 apps, what if you said, I'm gonna have variation within guardrails. Here's a set of fire services, and we are going to empower local developers to create apps or websites or whatever based on that set of fire services for which it's okay. If you don't like it, throw it away, put something else. It doesn't create huge dependencies. So governance is key. And then building these notions of abstraction layers and allowing variation within strict guardrails, which doesn't mean buying a new application from scratch. Very interesting. Yes, plastics. That was one of the funniest. What is it? I have one word for you. Plastics. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Next question. Um, Mark, let's start with you. How can organizations identify applications that should be sunset? So, um, we'll go back to John Kravitz in a minute. Um, he talked about going from 1500 to 800. So obviously there's a lot of decisions that go into that. One is, and we'll get to this, how do you come up with that number of 800? Or do you arrive at that after you go through a certain criteria that then whittles it down to 800? Um, but Mark, your thoughts on how you pick. You said you're, what you deem is an important is different than what the users think is important. Yeah, and it's probably the same answer I gave you just a second ago about working with our end users. And I mean, we understand. So we have teams, right? IT organizations have teams that understand what applications are out there by and large. I mean, there's the ones that are rogue that are not under the umbrella of IT, but you know, even, even those now in the security focused world, we, we've got a pretty good handle on what our application inventory is. So I think we, we created and this is historical now, at least a few months ago, but we created a complete application inventory so that we understood what those applications were and what those applications did. Then it became a process and is still a process of working with the end users and saying, okay, what are we really trying to do with these? Because most applications, it's like the old calculators that we had, other than John Holomka, who used every function on those calculators. <laughs> most of us use it for subtraction, multiplication, addition, and division. You know, maybe a square root now and again when we want to look smart. But then it has hundreds of other applications that, that it does. Um, the same thing happens with the, the technology that we buy. And, and so we put all this technology out there where only 10 or 20% of it's being used. And we can work with the end users on, on understanding what those are and, and what are they really trying to do with it. But it starts with that application inventory, at least from my perspective. John Halamka, um, people probably think whatever they're using is important, right? Nobody wants to give up the app that, that they're on. So uh, how do you identify what to be sunset? And if you're incorporating discussions with the end users, how do you get over the fact that everyone's going to say, well, this one is really important? So there are three criteria I've used, and one is value. You know, what are you getting out of that app versus its cost? And I won't name names of any vendor, but there was a legacy vendor who wanted $5,000 per physician 
so that you could view the data on a cell phone, <laughs> right? And so the point being the value proposition of continuing that application as more and more mobile came into the organization was such, you just had to get rid of it. It was craziness. The second is from a compliance perspective, I mean, again, we're past the meaningful use era, but if a vendor says, oh, we're just not gonna do meaningful use stage three. <laughs> you know, uh, well, you kind of got to get rid of it. You know, uh -huh. you need to comply with federal requirements. And probably the third is life cycle management. I mean, you know, Mark, you got any applications running in COBOL? <laughs> How about TAL? We got TAL. <laughs> Well, and so point being is that if it's 2020, I mean, and this is not a joke because it's a real issue. COBOL still exists in many organizations. Try finding an MIT grad who says, God, I can't wait till I graduate and use COBOL. Mm -hmm. Not happening, right? So you just discover that you just can't maintain that application over a life cycle going forward. John Kravitz. Well, they make us old CIOs who knew how to write in COBOL maintain those old systems, right, John? <laughs> no, but seriously, I actually have two mainframe applications that I can't wait to retire next year because they were those billing systems that ran on that platform. And they cost me a lot of money. It makes no sense. And it's just ridiculous. But to the point, you know, that Mark brought up application inventory. Yes, mission critical. We've done that uh, as part of this process. Uh, the other point that Mark brought up it, before that last segment was working with the end users and understanding what their business needs are. And that does go hand in hand with governance. And that's what we do as part of that process with governance that I neglected to mention. Uh, but the other part of this, we also look at how often we can see it on the system, how often those applications are actually used and how many users are actually accessing those applications, which helps us as a starting point because people will, just, you know, it's a natural thing to push back and say, I need this application, but you have one user or two users in the whole system that are using it. And what's so specialized about the application? I don't mean to be disrespectful to you, you know, doctor so-and-so, but, you know, we really need to look at this very carefully and closely. And as John had mentioned, you know, what is the cost to maintain your application? And the cost, the maintenance cost is just like the tip of the iceberg. You've got all the compliance and the personnel and DR and all those other pieces that are so expensive. And so as we look at this and look to streamline operations, move more to the cloud, obviously some of those costs go away in the data center, uh, but the application support and disaster recovery and some of those other things don't always go away or they'll have to be tested and validated and everything else. So, you know, identifying those applications to sunset, I've already taken a cut at that and I, I took our first cut at it. We call it rocks or I should say boulders, rocks, pebbles. Our, our boulder shot was about 160 applications that we looked at and we're going to go and, and work through those to, to retire those and get them sunset. Um, then we'll keep digging and digging deeper, but it is an iterative process. It takes time. Uh, it takes some patience, but we all don't have a lot of time and a lot of patience, especially when we reduce costs for the organization. So, uh, we're going to be working on that pretty judiciously to get through it. Yeah, uh, John, that sounds, I mean, you talk about going from 1,500 to 800, and you talk about individual conversations for each one of these. I mean, it sounds like unbelievably time-consuming And that do you have a real process for this uh, in terms of a, a recipe, a formula? Here's how this goes when we want to target an application. Here's how this is going to go, this back and forth, and here's the end point, or 
because this sounds like it could be interminable. It, it could be. A big chunk of those are the legacy uh, EHR and associated systems that will go out the door. So those are pretty easy conversations. They aren't being used anymore. So those are going to go and be retired as we move all of our applications out and archive everything in the LK. Um, that's a big, big chunk. Not, not, the, not the entire 700. But uh, we do have a team of people, and they are divide and conquer approach. And when things get real sticky, I get involved in the conversations with the end users and institute leaders, uh, service line leaders, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it does consume time, but it, it's a it's a painstaking process because IT can't make that decision for the business. It's got to work in conjunction with the business, and not we can't be a dictatorship. It's just not going to work. We'll fail, and I'll be looking for a new job real quick. <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. All right. Very good. Very good. Um, Dr. Halamka, let's start with you. Once applications have been identified as well suited for decommissioning and no discussion has happened and everyone's on the same page, what are your thoughts on um, the best way to go about it so the data is transferred correctly and securely and users experience as little disruption as possible other than higher LK, which we know is uh, an option? Um, what are some thoughts there? At least when I've done it, the issue ends up being workflow. And what if you tell a doctor, you know, you're going to live in Epic for 99% of your day, but make sure that in every 11-minute visit, you go over to these three other screens and check to see if there are legacy records to be found there. Uh, you know, they never do it. And, and so the key is put it in a form that ensures data integrity and compliance, but then ensure that it's in the workflow natural, it's easy, it's integrated for a clinician to get at this legacy data. And what I ended up doing was creating URLs that you could embed in EHR user interfaces and one click, you would be able to pull out any external records. Okay, very good. Uh, John Kravitz. Yeah, I just, I wanted to add to what John was saying because we have a pretty robust health information exchange which ties a lot of the community, about 180, 190 different organizations all participate. And so we use it for, um, you know, chronic disease management, care gap closure, things like that. And what's been really valuable as, as John stated, they don't, even, even within the EHR, they don't want to click the outside records tab. They want things flowing right into their workflow so it's right in the inbox and they can see everything. So it's been painstaking, the mapping and the data integrity and everything else to get that data across, but it's working well. And, uh, you know, we get those outside lab results or outside radiology reports, so we don't order another CT or MR or whatever else and waste time and money, a lot of money spent, and, uh, and the results are available. If they're current, they're right in the workflow, and they have it. So workflow is the key, in my opinion, to making this successful. Workflow is the key. Mark Probst? Yeah, I mean, they are so right on, both Johns. But I think the only thing I'd add to it is pay attention to the details. Now, we've kind of come back to it a number of times. This isn't necessarily easy to do. And um, there are hidden, whether it's hidden data fields or just the, the meaning of that data, it's really paying attention to the details. If you don't want to become disruptive, is go down, the, you know, you go further down the uh, data archiving and, and decommissioning. Let me just add to what Mark said, just with a funny example. And so um, I, years ago, had a company, not LK, uh, that archived data, and they said, well, no problem. We can present your laboratories to you, like Chem 7s. And they said, now, Chem 7s, you know, it's sodium, potassium, bicarb, chlorine. We'll just present that in alphabetical order. <laughs> 
right? And so for any clinician listening, you know that looking at a Chem 7 in alphabetical order ain't the way you've ever seen it before. <laughs> so not only is workflow important, but detail, as Mark just described, if you're going to show legacy data, you have to show it in a format that's familiar and usable. Very good. All right, we're going to do our, our audience poll. We're going to launch that and our panelists can answer as well. The CIO's role in application subsetting is as much about politics as technology. When I say politics, I mean those conversations that John Kravitz and everyone else has been talking about. That's sort of, well, I need this. And like, well, there's one user and it hasn't been logged into in six months. So do you really need it? And then the doctor says, well, do you know how much revenue I bring in here? How much do you bring in? And you say, well, I don't. So those kind of conversations. Um, so there's the question. So uh, go ahead and answer that, and then we will come back and have our panelists guess at the results. So uh, everybody jump in and answer that if you would. Uh, now, uh, my favorite part, we're going to have our Ask a Co-Panelist segment. Mark Probst, I'm going to go to you first. You have a question for one or both of your co-panelists. Yeah, both, Johns. How do you prioritize this process of application rationalization and decommissioning in a world where you're crazy busy right now? I mean, how, how do you justify that as, a, as something that should be a priority? John Kravitz, please. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I look at it, Mark, it's, it's the opportunity for cost savings and simplification of our environment. Um, I look at all the costs associated with it. I've got 900 people in my IT shop uh, for the health system, the health plan, the medical school, which is very small, but that's a lot of people to support. Um, we want to look at migrating to the cloud, getting our data centers out into the cloud. We're in a process for that as well. We're rationalizing the applications. To me, it's so important to be able to reduce costs and identify the big items. So for me, first shot is uh, you know, the retiring of the legacy EMR data and the associated systems. So the EHR system and the connected systems that are part of that, that are no longer in production state for us, that are required to be uh, you know, retired and legacy data archived. So for me, that's the most important. Then I start looking down uh, at the other big hitters, the other uh, systems that are very expensive, very complex, uh, that don't necessarily get used very often. Um, and sometimes they're not even the big systems. They could be the small systems. We call them niche systems. And a lot of those give us the opportunity to retire them sooner. And most times they're not a lot of, you know, because we have mostly an on-premise operation. So the, the operational expense, when we go to look at the maintenance and everything else associated, because we've already had the licenses for years, um, it's not a lot of money. But when you collectively get rid of 100 to 200 of those, it does add up. And then you think about the personnel costs that you won't have to incur and we look at it through an attrition process. So if someone leaves the organization, we absorb the work elsewhere and uh, continue to reduce our expenses. When we move to the cloud, it'll get better and faster to be able to reduce all those costs. I look at like a three-legged stool. You've got the application costs, the, the hardware costs associated, and the personnel to support it. Dr. Halamka? So I've always considered five elements in prioritizing any IT project. Is it strategic? Does the organization need this done? What is the impact on doctors, patients, and staff? What's the ROI? What are the quality and safety imperatives? And what are the compliance uh, issues and requirements? 
And so especially as we talked about earlier, when these legacy applications aren't integrated into workflow and don't meet compliance requirements and don't have lifecycle management, you can see in that framework, it falls to the top. It gets prioritized. Thank you. What's that? All right. Very good. We're going to go back to our poll and end the poll. And now we're going to have our panelists guess uh, at the results. So give me a percentage agree, Mark Probst. Uh, 90. 90. John Halamka. Yes, yeah, I was going to say, is it technology or psychiatry? It's psychiatry. 90. 90. Uh, John Kravitz. 91. <laughs> 91. Oh John Kravitz is going to win with 93% is the answer. 93%. So everybody thinks it's about politics for the CIO, not technology. Very good. I don't think they said that. They said it is as much. All right. As, All right. Well, trust me, you better have the technical capability or your politics are going to be worthless. Good point. Well, well said. Well said. All right, I have a question from the audience. Uh, John Holomka, let me throw this to you. How comfortable with third-party risk management, with third-party risk assessments and governance is your organization? Um, and again, you know, I wouldn't speak on behalf of a particular organization, but I'll just tell you this, that you need some framework for evaluating risk. And so... In every organization I've ever worked in, they say, pick one. And whether that's COBIT, ITIL, NIST, something, and then go hire a firm, a third party, who will adhere to that framework. And so it's not as much as trusting the third party, it's believing in the framework. And in fact, if you don't like your third party, you can go to another third party if necessary. And they, as long as they use the framework, you hope the results are comparable. John Kravitz, thoughts on third-party risk assessment and governance? I think, you know, what John just said is really important. We use ITIL and we also use NIST for security standards. So that's very important to us. It is a standard consistent framework to follow. Uh, risk is evaluated every single day in every organization, I believe, so that we are successful and we do have longevity as an organization. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the, the business risk outweighs the the other risk to the organization. And sometimes you have to make that tough decision uh, because it's a requirement for the business. But uh, those standard frameworks are really important. And, and that's really what we follow as an organization as well. All right, excellent. Uh, let's go back to ask a co-panelist. John Kravitz, do you have a question for your co-panelists? Well, I guess, uh, yeah, the question I would ask is how successful have you been in reducing the application portfolios in your organizations Mark, and I would, I would say, well, John, too, uh, your past organizations inclusive, you know, have you, have you guys been able to get them to a reasonable uh, level of, you know, IT application portfolio within your organizations? Dr. Halamka? Okay, so, so John, uh, I'm going to test your technical knowledge here. How well does Visual Basic 5 run in the cloud? <laughs> <laughs> and so the point being is that as you do these cloud migrations, which all of us are doing, you naturally have to kill applications that just can't be migrated. And that's a, a real sense of urgency. Mark Probst. 
Uh, below average, John, honestly, in, in getting, getting it done. You know, we made a, prior to me leaving, we, we were on about a year and a half race to get to the cloud, really to move the vast majority of our applications to the cloud. And through that process, we, we did find, didn't find, we actually knew, but we were able to decommission some of the applications that we wanted to decommission. But, um, you know, it, it kind of goes to the question I asked, trying to keep that prioritized amidst all the other things that we were doing um, was difficult. And, uh, and that's why I really appreciated both of your answers. I think that's useful for CIOs and other technologists moving forward. We really do need to move this up in priority because it's, it's the right thing for our organizations. But I would say average. Thank you. All yeah. right. Go ahead. Before you go on, just another comment. I think uh, what John Holomka was saying is, is something else I neglected to mention, but we are looking as we migrate to the cloud, that will be another um, another cut, so to speak, if, if an application can't be a SaaS-based application where, you know, you really get value moving to the cloud when you only use the amount of processing power and storage that's really necessary, and then you adjust that up as you need to. You're not paying for things that you may waste in your own data center because vendors write inefficient code. Uh, and things you know are not um, are not as tight and concise. So you know moving that to the cloud makes a lot of sense. That will be one of our biggest opportunities, I think, to to rationalize applications that can't make that cut to the cloud. Um, and hopefully, we don't add a lot of new ones going in to replace those. So that's part of our strategy. Sorry, Anthony. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Very good. All right, I have another audience question I want to throw out. Um, John Kravitz, let's start with you. The main EHR vendors provide their list of hundreds of their applications, even on fancy pamphlets. How do you navigate that list and determine best for your organization? Well, again, we, we work with our, uh, our end users. And, uh, and so we often see demonstrations. So I'll give you an example. We were the third Epic customer to take this leap of faith back in 1995. And so what that means is, you know, Epic was a toolkit back at that time. It didn't have all the, it didn't have a clinical order sets. Uh, we had to build all those things way back when. That was way before my time, so I can't take any credit for that. But um, this, over time, applications became available. And when they first came out, they weren't very good. And then over time, they, they were more uh, perfected. You know, over time, they were agile and they continued to improve those applications. So we continuously look at opportunities to move to our existing longitudinal EHR for a lot of areas of our organization. And we've been moving to those pretty rapidly. Two, three, four applications per year have been migrated over and getting rid of a lot of specialty applications that cost the organization a lot of money. And uh, for us, it's been the engagement of the providers, uh, getting them involved in this process. A lot of them are involved as physician informaticists. So they understand the systems, they understand the data. Uh, we engage them heavily, uh, provide demonstrations, capabilities. Sometimes they'll say, you know, it's not quite there. It's not, if it's 80% of what I have now, I might be able to make that work. And I'll try my best to make it work. So we'll do a POC on it and, and see how well it works. And then most of the time we do cut it over production and it does work. Uh, but it's continuous communication and it's education of our physicians and involving them in the decision process has worked well for us. Dr. Holomka. DevOps, right? So make sure the strategy and the needs of the business are incorporated into your operation. 
And over and over in my career, when I've said, oh, the CIO knows best, or we'll pick a bright, shiny object, or it's the technology that drives our decision, I've been wrong, and it's unsustainable. So listen, as you heard from John, to the needs of the business. Mark Probst, any thoughts? Uh, just I, what, what was said was perfect. So perfect. no need. Perfect. Um, another audience question: uh, What method did you use for performing your application inventory? John Halanka, thoughts on that? Um, again, I don't want to endorse any particular product or service, but my organization happened to use ServiceNow as a mechanism of figuring out who was using what. Okay, John Kravitz? Exactly the same, and we love it. Okay. So All right. Very good. Okay, real quick. Um, I'm pushing the envelope here, but Dr. Holomka, did you have a question for one of your co-panelists? What HP calculator did you own in the 1970s? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like a 50 or something. Yeah. Mine was an HP 65. Came with a little mag tape. 100 programming steps. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. So as you move to the cloud, do you encounter resistance from parts of your organization that say, oh, well, the cloud, it's unsafe. It's not secure. You can't lock it at night. Because uh, it's fascinating as we have many, many stakeholders, all of us, that knowing it's right doesn't make it easy. Uh, John Kravitz. All right, well, um, I haven't had a lot of pushback. I think because we've had good success with the cloud with a lot of private cloud offerings that we've, we've put new systems up like ServiceNow, like Workday for HCM, like Salesforce for CRM, and a bunch of other smaller ones. But you know, we've had great uptime and availability. Security, security is so important with CASB and everything else with the cloud DLP, all those components. I think, you know, you've got to, you've got to select a great public cloud vendor that has a good platform for security, uh, DR services and, and high availability and things like that. Uh, but you've got to do your homework and the team that's involved in security. I would say, you know, if you're doing a cloud migration, don't, don't try this all by yourself because you may open up those holes that you don't want to expose uh, to the public internet. So, um, you know, we obviously have a lot of training on our team for this, but we are going to the experts to assist us so that we make sure we, you know, dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's, make sure we're secure, safe, and our track record has to be good. We can't have latency or issues that cause frustration for the operations. Listen, we're coming up on the end of the event. Uh, Mark Probst, I want to give you an opportunity for a final word. I think uh, one of the main themes of this is the devil is in the details. We talked about don't try this at home. John Halamka said uh, not for the faint of heart. Um, so your thoughts to wrap us up today. No, I support all that. And I want to answer John's question really quick. By an order of magnitude, John, it was the IT application owners, not the users, that had any resistance to moving things to the cloud. I don't know what your experience has been. But no, I mean, I, I love what we've talked about. These are two of the brightest uh, IT leaders in the industry. And so I'm honored to be on this with them. And, uh, you know, if you pay attention to details, if you prioritize things appropriately, there's money to be saved. And there's benefit to our end users if this is done right. So, you know, again, it's an honor to be with you guys. And uh, thanks for your input. Thank you. Same All here. right. That, 
that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the archive recording of this is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox on our team, or you can, and you can go to our website to view upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our tremendous, uh, tremendous panel, uh, Dr. John Holomka, John Kravitz, and Mark Probst. I want to thank LK for, again, working with us and making this conversation possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.